we so very desperately want death to not be the end. We don't want death to separate us from those whom we love. And many of us will grasp onto the smallest signs of hope to try to satisfy our longing. I've heard I don't know how many stories throughout the years of signs that people say were their loved ones. They saw a lone feather sitting in the field or an unusual, unusual and unseasonable bird sitting on their windowsill or the sun breaking through the clouds and shining down its beams. And someone might say, that's so-and-so sending me a sign. And I understand it. It gives us a warm feeling inside, but I want to push us to stop settling for signs like this. We have no evidence that such signs are real, but even if we were to say that all of those are real, you deserve more. Finding satisfaction in those signs is like craving dessert and settling for a sprinkle. Technically, a sprinkle is a dessert. But who in their right mind is going to eat a sprinkle all by itself and say, that was a tasty dessert? We want ice cream, cake, cookies, pie. And when it comes to hope of life after death, we need to stop settling for a sprinkle. And in our sermon passage today, John tells us why. John shows us that something far better than a sprinkle is available. Real hope of life after death is here for us. Today we celebrate that hope of Jesus rising from the dead and we look to the sure word of God to tell us that there is real and living hope for us. So I'd encourage you to hear the Word of God this morning. You may open up your bulletins, your Bibles, follow along with me. We're in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, as we hear the account of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hear the Word of God. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. And he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary 
stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Let us pray. Oh God, we thank you for your word and the hope that it gives us. Hope we never could have expected, and yet hope we desired more than anything we could imagine. Lord, thank you that you have testified to the truth of the empty tomb and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Thank you, O God, that you speak truly to us. And I pray, O Lord, that you would speak through me today as I proclaim your word. Use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to faithfully and clearly proclaim your truth, O God, and to apply it. And I pray you would give us all ears to hear. Lord, may we have ears to hear the greatest news the world has ever heard today. And would you open our hearts and minds to believe this, to believe the truth that you give us of light breaking through the darkness, of death's defeat, and of life's victory as Christ won when he rose from the dead. May we hear the voice of Jesus in the word today calling us to believe. It's in his name we pray. Amen. This morning we're going to look at this account of the resurrection of that first Easter morning. I want us to see that what John presents for us is both certain evidence and personal experience. Both of those things together give us reason to believe the resurrection of Jesus. And we're going to then see how this just changed everything in ways we could not expect. The first 10 verses here in John chapter 20 emphasize the certain evidence of the empty tomb. That when you read these verses, they don't necessarily sound like the most joyful news in the world that Jesus is alive. They are not the crescendo of grand pronouncements of victory and celebration. These first 10 verses, if you look at them closely, don't even say that Jesus rose from the dead. Instead, they read like you are reading the notes the police took on a witness statement. And that's because John, the disciple who is writing this, is sharing his own eyewitness account of finding the tomb empty. 
Just like we saw at our Good Friday service, John does not add any side comments or poetic flourishes, at least not until verses 8 and 9. John just shares basic details of what happened. Mary Magdalene showed up early. It was dark. She saw the stone rolled away. She came back and told us. And we ran there. I got there first. Don't let Peter tell you otherwise. I got there first, but Peter did go in first. The grave clothes were here. The face covering was here. And John even tells us he believed, even though he didn't quite understand what it all meant at that moment. John's testimony shows us a man who slowly pieced together that something unusual happened that morning. Why would the tomb be opened after all? And why would the body be missing from the tomb? And why, if the body is missing, are the linens still here? The linens that had been wrapped tightly around the body. It was a head-scratcher. If someone were going to move the body to another place, why would you, like, unwrap it and undress it first? I would want something to hold on to. And so John recounts finding all these pieces of evidence. And when... He found them, it says, he saw and believed. He knew Jesus being alive again after such a horrific death, that's that's impossible. But when he was confronted with the evidence, he concludes that something miraculous had to have happened. It was the most likely explanation. Now I get it. This idea that Jesus actually rose from the dead sounds crazy to so many people in our world today. And it should People don't come back from the dead. That's our experience. But I want to help us to see that the evidence that Jesus came back from the dead is very believable. And to do that, I want to compare the story of the resurrection with the conspiracy theory that birds are not real. Now, over the last few years, a movement has grown to raise awareness that the United States government has killed all of the birds in our country and replaced them with surveillance drones. This is a thing. You can look it up. It's called Birds Aren't Real. Now, what you need to know is this is a satire. The people who talk about it know it is made up. And yet, the idea that birds aren't real is no more absurd than believing that Jesus came back from the dead. But notice the lack of evidence for the belief that birds are not real. Has one robot bird been found and uncovered? No. You could find any number of birds outside your home and you could capture or kill them, I suppose, and see, well, that's a real bird. It must not be true. It is a ridiculous belief that is easily disprovable. The resurrection of Jesus is also a ridiculous belief that was easily disprovable. See, the easiest way to disprove it was to be like, there's Jesus' dead body. But the tomb was empty. And no body was found. Even though the Jewish leaders at the time had every reason to search wherever they could to find Jesus' body. They could have even made up that this was Jesus' body, even if they found someone else's body. 
At the time that John saw the empty tomb, the story of Jesus rising from the dead would have been no less ridiculous than birds being replaced by drones. But the empty tomb stands today as an indisputable piece of evidence that John points to. John says, I saw the evidence and I believed. Just as today we base our belief on the resurrection, not based on a fairy tale or what we want to be true, but on the fact that the tomb is still empty. But the empty tomb is not the only reason for belief in the resurrection. It is also an undisputed fact that a group of people believed that they saw Jesus risen from the dead. And so even if you're skeptical and you're like, I'm not ready to admit that Jesus actually rose from the dead. That's fine. Okay. You have to admit that within those first weeks, a group of people came to believe that they did see Jesus risen from the dead. And that they were willing to die for that belief. You see, they didn't only believe because of the empty tomb. They believed because they had a personal encounter with the risen Jesus. And in our passage, Mary Magdalene is described as having the first personal encounter with him. After running to tell the disciples that the tomb was empty, she later returned to the tomb where she weeps. And after Peter and John leave, she looks into the tomb and sees two angels where Jesus' body has been. And the angels ask her, why are you weeping? Implying, this is not a sad day, Mary. But Mary still thinks someone has taken Jesus' body. She does not want him to suffer further dishonor in death. Now, I love the part here where we just never talk about the fact that we move on from Mary getting talked to by angels. John has no information for us about like, wow, angels talk to me. Nothing. No interest in it. Because it seems that instead of asking all of the questions we would ask when confronted with an angel, she hears someone behind her. And she approaches this man, assuming that he tends to the garden where the tomb is. This man also, like the angel, asks, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Mary suggests, not, not accuses, suggests that this man might have moved Jesus' body for some reason. Possibly because it didn't belong in that tomb. And so Mary offers, I will take the body, I will bury it elsewhere, just tell me where it is. We are not told why Mary didn't recognize Jesus at first. We don't know if Jesus supernaturally concealed himself in some way. We don't know if Mary's eyes were so full of tears that she couldn't see him clearly. We don't know if Mary's mind simply couldn't comprehend the possibility that Jesus was alive. But we do know what made her recognize him. He said her name. It is strange that the most impossible to pronounce word in all the Bible is the word Mary. Mary's not all that hard to say. We know what it means. The problem with pronouncing this word Mary is that none of us can say it like Jesus did. And that's the point. When Mary heard her name out of Jesus' mouth, she knew whose voice it was. 
she had heard him say her name before. And with sudden recognition, she calls him by the name that she used for him, Rabboni, which means teacher. Just as the children knew the voice of their mother, so also Mary knew the voice of her teacher. Earlier in John's Gospel, we read, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary heard her shepherd's voice and she believed the unbelievable. Jesus, who died, was alive again right before her eyes, speaking to her. Mary didn't have to settle for a sprinkle. In the resurrection of Jesus, she experienced all that we desire and more. She encountered real hope that death is not the end, and that hope is tied to her teacher. Understandably, at that moment, Mary just grabbed him. Grasped him, clung to him, not wanting to let go. It felt so much like a dream, but it wasn't a dream. It was real. She was touching him. She was holding her Jesus, her teacher, who had died. And then Jesus tells Mary, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. It's kind of odd. It's a big reunion. Let go of me is not really like the exciting embrace that we were hoping for. Why does Jesus tell her that? Well, his words are more like, now is not the time to hold on to me. Because Mary, I have a job for you. Go, tell the others the good news. As happy as Jesus was that Mary knew he was alive, he wanted all his sheep to hear his voice. He wanted the good news to spread through all the earth so people would stop settling for sprinkles. He didn't want people saying he was a good person to give themselves hope of life after death. He didn't want people simply fantasizing about being with loved ones without any evidence to back it up. Jesus wanted to give real hope to people. Hope based on evidence and experience. And Jesus calls all his people to share this news with a world that is in darkness and without hope. That is why Jesus has ascended into heaven. You see, you would think he'd stick around and tell everyone himself, but no. In his infinite wisdom, he has chosen people like Mary Magdalene and John the disciple and you to go and tell the world that He has risen from the dead. To testify to the world that a new age has dawned and Jesus reigns now and forevermore over a spiritual kingdom. And He has called us to live as His sheep, following His voice by obeying His commands and bearing witness to the truth of His life, death, and resurrection. And so I'm guessing today that you're going to gather in a little bit for a feast on Easter. And as you gather for that feast, may you not just feast on the warm feelings of the day or the tasty food that someone has prepared. As good as those things are, they are mere sprinkles. Instead, let us invite people to feast on the hope that Jesus gives. 
a hope that truly satisfies our longing for life after death, a real hope based on evidence and experience, a hope that fills us with purpose in this life, a hope that Jesus reigns now and is coming again to make all things new. For our Savior lives and He is coming soon. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us to see the great hope that has been laid before us like a banquet feast. May we stop settling for the small sprinkles of hope that we make up for ourselves and may we grasp on tightly to the real hope we are given on Easter so that when we or our loved ones face death, we have hope in Christ. Hope for all who believe. And so I pray, O Lord, that you would help us to hear and believe just as John saw and believed. That you would help us to hear and believe just as Mary heard and believed. That you, O Jesus, would speak through your word and we would hear your voice today calling out to us to believe in him. That Jesus died for us and rose again for us. And has given us amazing hope. It's in his name we pray. Amen.